And uh, this morning we were thinking about um, how uh, George Frederick Handel incorporated Hebrews uh, eleven fifteen into the great oratorio Messiah. And uh, this, this evening's text was an inspiration for Isaac Watts as he composed the now famous Christmas carol, Joy to the World. And uh, it's a, a, a psalm, like I said a few moments ago, which if, is very similar to that of Psalm 96. And as we're reading it together, you can identify some of the same themes. Psalm 98, O sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. The Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered His steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of, the mel uh, of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands, let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Well, this uh, psalm celebrates uh, the Lord's righteousness. Uh, the Lord, at numerous times in the history of God's people, came through for them. It's just, just as you uh, go through the events of the Old Testament and the New Testament in your mind, you can see how many occasions God came through for His people. And sometimes at their most sinful uh, times. We can think of the judges over a period of 400 years, how Israel were constantly rebelling against God, and yet God uh, would send them judges, uh, like Gideon and Samson and other judges, where uh, God was continually delivering His people. And of course, then they would, they would backslide again. Uh, but uh, it's a... a, a a, a psalm that celebrates the marvelous things there. You can see in verse 1 that God has done. How God has been faithful to His covenant. And that God has been faithful to His own righteousness. And so here He reveals uh, His salvation and His judgment. Just like Revelation as we've been seeing this morning. Uh, as, as the seventh trumpet is blown and as history comes to a consummation and God rewards His servants from the greatest to the smallest and yet meets out judgment which the wicked uh, absolutely deserve. And so it, the Psalm 98 is really a replay of what we were uh, looking at and thinking about this morning. How God faithfully uh, intercedes 
uh, for the last time and in such a grand universal way not only for his people but for as this psalm says all the earth all, his, his salvation is made known to all the earth the nations are given to the sun as we saw this morning the, the, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever so all of those times of deliverance going back into the Old Testament were really forerunners of what was going to come at the end of time as God's universal salvation would be made known before uh, the nations and so as the Lord now undertakes for Israel and we don't know what the occasion for this psalm was but uh, some think it was written after the exile when the people had come back from uh, Babylon after 70 years and God worked a great salvation it just seemed impossible that they were going to be able to come back to the land rebuild the city rebuild the walls and the temple but nevertheless that's what happened and so all of those um, situations call forth fresh new praise and so you can see here the depth uh, with which the psalmist is feeling this oh sing a new song to the Lord these are such uh, wondrous words uh, that just that word oh it uh, calls forth the, the the depth of praise that is coming from the psalmist's heart and it it reveals to us the passion that he has for his people Oh, that you would see. Uh, or as Paul says there at the end of Romans as he goes through, uh, again, he's, he's thinking about the cross. Now the psalmist here is thinking about all of God's marvelous works, his creation, but particularly salvation, which he sent to his people. And he concludes by saying, Oh, sing a new song to the Lord. Now, when we come into the New Testament, we hear the Apostle Paul saying, Oh, the depth of the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his ways past finding out. And there, Paul is talking about God's work of redemption on the cross. Kind of signifying to us that of all that God has done, what he has done in Jesus outshines everything else. And so we are able to sing this afresh. We are able to sing this with a, a, a renewed passion, even more so than the psalmist. Spurgeon says that the invitations of the gospel are to happiness. In delivering God's message, we do not ask men to come to a funeral, but to a wedding feast. And that is so true. And so he's reflecting that passion of the psalmist Henry Law uh, said that hell and its legions had usurped dominion over man many chains enthralled him he was bound in irons of captivity Jesus undertakes the rescue he leads captivity captive and saves his people from the cruel grasp alone he does the work he by himself purges our sins alone he hangs upon the accursed tree alone he tramples Satan beneath his feet 
To Him be all the praise. In Him salvation triumphs. And out of that marvelous work, we sing a new song. This is the idea of the new song. He's not necessarily saying that every time God does something that we start to write a new song. Now that is oftentimes the case. In periods of great redemption, you have things like the song of Moses at the edge of the Red Sea. They sang the song of Moses singing about the defeat of Pharaoh in the water and so on. As, they, as the Egyptian army was swallowed up in the water. And so they, they sang this song. And that's carried over into the book of Revelation. They saw, sang the, a new song of Moses and the Lamb. And oftentimes, new periods of God's saving grace bring forth new materials of praise. And so with the establishment of the kingdom under David, you have a that's when the Psalms come into prominence. When David, we, we, we talk about it, um, uh, the, the, the Psalms of David in meter, not David didn't write them all, but it's, it's called the Psalms of David. We often refer to it that way because the Psalms came to prominence under King David as the kingdom now comes to prominence. And when Jesus comes into the world, you hear singing all over the place. And uh, we, we uh, just read of that uh, in Luke's Gospel there. The Magnificat, then the Song of Zechariah, and then the later on, uh, the, the, uh, the, the Song of Simeon. The angels are there in the sky singing glory to God in the highest and so on. It issues forth in new singing. But for us personally, we can go to that which is already there and sing a new song. It doesn't mean we have to be like Charles Wesley or Isaac Watts or King David or any of these great writers to say, oh, I've had a fresh experience of God's grace. I've got to find a pen and paper and start writing a song. Well, not everyone is gifted in that way. But it's going back to songs like this and singing them in a fresh new way. We saw that with uh, uh, Psalm 136 as uh, under uh, Jehoshaphat. You remember uh, a couple of weeks ago we talked about they sent the singers out first and it said, uh, give thanks to the Lord. His love endures forever. Well, that was a psalm that was written many years before, but they were singing it as a new song. And it's the same when it comes to the psalms. We can, how many times has the, the 23rd Psalm been so fresh for us? When we've experienced God's grace in a fresh new way. And many other songs, we go back and say, you know, that Psalm now means so much more to me now because I've undergone this and I've come out the other side and the Lord's been so faithful to me. He's shown His righteousness in my life. And so I am now able to sing a new song to the Lord. Well, it may be the 23rd Psalm. It may be Psalm 98. It may be the 100th Psalm. But you are, have received a fresh encounter with God's goodness. And you're able to go back and sing these Psalms afresh. 
That was certainly the case for the New Testament church. Can you imagine being uh, Peter and James and John and all of these people and ultimately discovering that Psalm 22 was being lived out before your very eyes? That Psalm 23 was right in front of you? That the Lord, that my shepherd, is the one who died on the cross? The, the shepherd who gives his life for the sheep? So that there was a whole body of, of, uh, of praise here that was fresh to them. They say, we can't believe this. this is, these psalms are now more relevant to us now than they were even when David wrote them. Because Jesus has invested them with new meaning. He has brought them to fulfillment. We can sing of the evangelization of the world. Uh, through these psalms now. We, can, uh, we have a, a deeper grasp and understanding. So the psalmist says here, Oh, sing a new song to the Lord, for He has done uh, marvelous things. The marvelous things that he speaks about there are those that we have spoken about uh, already. Uh, one of the most famous, of course, was the Exodus. That was the, de the defining moment. If you were an Old Testament believer, the Exodus was the defining moment in the history of your people. Just like for us, the cross is the defining moment in our lives. But for them, it was the Exodus. But the Exodus is so full of what the cross would be. And so the people uh, are given that and many other marvelous things that God has done. We can think of creation, God's hand in providence, uh, the way in which God upholds the world, the way in which God protects His people and delivers them miraculously. We can think about the, the wilderness wanderings where He fed them with, with manna each and every day, brought water out of the rock and quails from the sky. These are things that really happened in history. And the many deliverances that he made under Gideon and Samson and David and Samuel, and on and on it goes. Isn't it amazing? When you put them, line them all up, right? One after another. It would be amazing to just go through the Word of God and list all the events, wouldn't it? And that's just the Old Testament. Once you get into the New Testament and look at just the three-year period in which Jesus lived. And think about all the miracles, and all the things Jesus said. And then His death and resurrection. And then His ascension into heaven and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the, the, the spread of the Gospel so fast around the world through the Apostle Paul and Peter and Thomas, then into India and other places. So we go back to a psalm like Psalm 98 and think of the marvelous things that he has done. And we can say like Paul, oh, the depth of the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God. We feel it in our bones, and that's the way it's meant to be. Religion, Christianity, our faith is not to meant, meant to be something dead and dry and empty, but something that's living and vibrant. And when it becomes dead and empty, that's when we know we are in need of revival. When our, when our, our worship services are 
ill attended or when we do come and our hearts feel dead and sluggish that's when we need no we need God's reviving spirit in us that we might really put into words what the psalmist is saying here he says his right hand and his holy arm have worked for him salvation the prophet Isaiah describes that when he says to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed and then he goes on and he describes in Isaiah 53 the suffering servant the Lord Jesus um, he says there who has believed our report and what they heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed for he grew up before him like a young plant like a root out of the dry ground isn't it interesting the way Isaiah uh, joins those two ideas the arm of the Lord who has beheld his salvation his strength Isaiah then launches into this whole chapter on the death of the Lord Jesus where the arms of God were laid bare on a cross where the Son of God was cruelly crucified and nailed and in a very real way his right hand and his holy arm not just metaphorically not just in a poetic image but in a real physical way with blood with nails going through the nerves going through the bones as that is nailed into a wooden cross as he hangs there in agony Jesus won our redemption with his actual physical hands and feet. And that's why he says the Lord, uh, his, his right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. And so it's more than simply the psalmist saying God was revealed his power like at the Red Sea or as he overthrew Goliath or as the powerfully overthrew nations no it is the actual cost physical cost to the Lord Jesus in winning your and my salvation and that calls forth the deepest praise doesn't it it makes our connection with Jesus more intimate more personal than even the psalmist could say even when the psalmist said the Lord is my shepherd and he goes on to describe the intimate ways in which God is his shepherd, the Lord is his shepherd, but he could never have imagined the kind of intimacy of salvation that has been laid upon you and I through Jesus. As Paul says, look after the flock of God who have been purchased with the blood of God. Filled with God's Spirit, all of these things constitute the marvelous and wonderful works of God and so we have this salvation that is one for us and which calls forth the praise of his people then in verse 3 we're going to look at verse 2 in a moment he remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel he's remembered his steadfast love people of God may at some points 
may have thought that God had forgotten them. 400 years they spent in Egypt under the, under the yoke of Pharaoh. 70 years they were in Babylon. And at, at times in their lives, they may have forgotten. Sometimes we feel like the battle is heavy and long. And we feel, has God forgotten? Especially when you feel the darkness come in around and when you're dealing perhaps with sickness, you're dealing perhaps with some difficulty in your life you've been praying about and it doesn't seem to lift. And you feel, has God forsaken me? Has He left me? And all, in the silence, all sorts of questions and, and, and doubts and fears begin to flood your mind as it did with the people of Israel. Isaiah 40. Have you not known? You, know, you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord. He's, he's, the Lord has hidden Himself from me. And God says, have you not known? Have you not heard? That the maker of the ends of the earth, He does not faint nor grow weary? He has remembered His steadfast love. And this is this recounting of God's marvelous deeds is really the background to all of this. And he's, he's stimulating them to get them to remember their history. God has written it down for them. Marvelous works of God. That, this is what we have here. Every page contains the way in which God worked wonders for them. And even in the, the pages where you don't see overt miracles or the wonder working of God, you have God maybe giving His law. Or you have Psalms that speak of God's character and God's goodness. Even these are interventions of God that we are called to remember. He gave His law to His people. His words to the people of Israel. God has remembered His steadfast love and His faithfulness to the house of Israel. Almost 2,000 years before Jesus was born, God made that promise. Even going back to the Garden of Eden, He said that the, 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 the serpent would attack the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman would crush his head. That there would be one come who would reverse what happened in the Garden of Eden. And this is what Jesus does as He goes and He does battle against the devil in the wilderness. As He stands up against him with the Word of God saying, it is written, it is written, it is written. He stands where Adam falls and then He goes to the cross. And he takes upon himself the covenant curses that belong to Israel and belong to you and I. And so we are able to say he has remembered his steadfast love and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. Jesus would say as much to the woman at the well, salvation is of the Jews. He hasn't forgotten his ancient people. Salvation has come into the world through the house of Israel. Through the Jews. And so, we as a church, 
as a denomination have a history of remembering God's dealings with us through His people, the Jews. And so the Free Church, for example, has been involved in things like Christian witness to Israel. People back in our ecclesiastical history like Robert Murray McShane who had a great burden for the Jews. And you had other people much like that because we remember what God gifted the world through the Jewish people. And so we have had this ministry and we, we really need to be praying more for the Jewish people today. And that's a hard mission field. But he has remembered his steadfast love to his, uh, uh, his, uh, his steadfast love and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. And so you have salvation won. Salvation that is won. Uh, his right hand and his holy arm uh, have worked salvation for him. And then secondly, in verse 2, you have salvation proclaimed. The Lord has made known His salvation. And He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. And so God's salvation is not only one, but it is proclaimed. This is how God makes Himself known primarily, is through His acts of redemption. God's saving acts are His own self-revelation. As one person said, that God is His own evangelist. God makes Himself known in this way. When the children of Israel came up out of Egypt, the nations were trembling because they heard of all the great things that God was doing for His people. And that was to be a means of, of the nations coming in to Israel's light because they heard of God's faithfulness to His ancient people and brought them up out of the land of Egypt. How much more ought we ourselves to be making God's glory known and to be declaring His salvation and His righteousness in the light of the nations, in the presence of the nations. And so this is where the church now also comes to the fore. If God has made known His salvation, then it's incumbent upon the church. That's one of our highest callings. Do you know that? Before we spend on ourselves, it's not what's left over at the end of the month or at the end of the year. But it's how has God blessed me financially or with my time, or with my energy, or whatever. How can I now make known His salvation to the nations? And it could be in any number of ways. As we support mission work, as we support Bible translation, Bible distribution, whatever it is. We are mimicking God. We are imitating God's own desire to make known His salvation to the ends of the earth. He has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. This is one of the things that we find not only in the Old Testament. I mean, 
Israel's salvation was international, wasn't it? When they come up out of Egypt, everybody knew it. Everybody was terrified. All the Canaanite nations and all the surrounding nations, everybody heard about it. Then when you move into the New Testament, it's not a, a, a private matter at all. Paul, when he was arguing his case before Agrippa, could say to King Agrippa, he said, I know you know these things because they've not been done in a corner. Oftentimes, the religions, many religions of the world are concocted in the secret place. One man off somewhere, and all of a sudden, bling, there's a new religion. Whether it's Mohammed, he just emerges. One man, and all of a sudden, you've got a religion. Joseph Smith emerges from some encounter with the angel Moroni, and Mormonism is born, just like that. But all done in private, in secret. Some person, and out of from that one person, a religion grows. But that's not the way it is with Christianity. Everything is open and public. It's open to public scrutiny down through the centuries. It is not only that, it's been predicted and then it happened. And so his salvation is made known to all the nations. It's lived out publicly. It's not done some it's not something done in secret or in private. And that's what Paul is saying to Agrippa. I know you know these things because they've not been done in a corner. They've not been done in a private place. Jesus himself said, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in the temple where the Jews meet, and in secret I have said nothing. That's how uh, uh, the book of Acts opens as well. Acts chapter 2. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Um, and it, it says in verse 8, how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome. Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them, that is the apostles, telling in our language. You see, that was the miracle. The apostles were speaking, but it was coming in different languages to this person and that person. They were hearing it in their own native language. The mighty works of God. Isn't it wonderful how God works? Not in secret, not in private, but everything's out in the open. Open for public scrutiny. Where did it come from? Well, we all must conclude this is heaven sent. This is not something done in private. This is not something done in secret. This is a, the marvelous works of God Himself. And this is what the psalmist is celebrating even here in the Old Testament. He's made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness 
in the sight of the nations. In Acts, the religious leaders were troubled. They were saying, what will we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we can't do anything about it. We can't deny it. Again, public and open. God has displayed His salvation in the presence of the nations. Even the, the, the charge that was written against Jesus on the cross, it was written in the, the, all the languages of the day. Latin, Greek, Aramaic. So that all the world could know that this man is Jesus, King of the Jews. I mean, his enemies did it to spite him, didn't they? Pilate did it to dig a, dig a dagger into the Jews to mock them, saying, here's your Messiah. Oh, but God marvelously and wondrously used that sign to say to the nations, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. He has made known His salvation uh, known to the nations. And all the ends of the earth, verse 3, have seen the salvation of our God. So, he, in other words, he's going beyond. Not just saying to the nations, here's my power, here's my salvation, but offering it to them. Even before Jesus died, there were men coming saying to Andrew, Sir, we want to see Jesus. Where is He? We want to meet Him. And when the Spirit is poured out, it's poured out on people from all over the known world at that time. And since then, it's been spreading throughout all the world to the Israel of God. Not just Jews who are Jews physically, but Jews who are who have undergone a true circumcision of the heart, who have been born again of the Spirit of God, who are now grafted into the true Israel, and God has made a nation of people not only from the physical descendants of the Jews, but people from China, India, South America, North America, Britain, Europe, wherever. These again, are the marvelous works that God has not only shown in the presence of the nations, but the marvelous work of incorporating the nations into the kingdom of God, into the church, into the body of Christ. And out of that, making known His salvation to the ends of the earth, the psalmist says, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the tragedy of the modern church. The tragedy of, as Alistair Begg said when he was in Charlottetown, as he observed in his own city in Cleveland, Ohio, he said traveling to church and seeing churches darkened. Christian churches, evangelical churches, darkened. They did their time in the morning. That's it. And 
Yet the people of God here, who, as we see in Psalm 92, worshipped Him in the morning and praised Him in the evening. And here, in the full-blown light of the Gospel, as we see these psalms invested with a new glory, the people of God are to be even more zealous and they have more reason to lift up God's name and to praise Him and to meet together. So the writer of Hebrews says, do not neglect the assembling of yourselves together. Worship God. Lift Him up. For not only the multitude of things that He's done, the many marvelous wonders that He has done, but the depth of them, the character. Study them. Mull them over in your mind. Mull them over in your heart. That's what it is to meditate upon the Lord. Is to let that roll over in your mind. Or as I heard Jack say many years ago in Charlottetown, let the word percolate in your mind like a coffee percolator. <laughs> We're bubbling up and letting that water seep down through the coffee so you get a good brew. That's what we're called upon to do when we have such a multitude of things to praise the Lord for in the light of His coming. And so we are called upon to adore the Lord. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. This is where Isaac Watts gets his opening words. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of the melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. And primarily, he's probably thinking about the ceremonies of the temple where the, David organized the temple orchestra, which would have been a strange sight to see in the temple as the priest was cutting the lamb's throat and... and uh, pouring out the blood and going through all these sacrifices, there was a Levitical choir over in the corner. And they had horns and they had musical instruments as they were playing. And they were signifying the joy of God's salvation. What a, a strange thing that would be. Imagine going to a slaughterhouse somewhere. Maybe McPhee's slaughterhouse in there in Charlottetown or some slaughterhouse or on PEI, where cows are killed, up maybe the, the beef plant up in Borden, and you look over in the corner and there's these people playing music. That would be really strange. But in the temple, that's what happened. People were sacrificing bulls and goats and lambs, and you had a Levitical choir blowing trumpets, playing the lyre, doing all these things, playing the flute, all these instruments that were arranged by David to accompany the sacrifice. But what he is getting at here is, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And he goes on, he says, with trumpets, with the sound of the horn, let the sea roar, roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands and let the hills sing for joy together. So it's nature rejoicing, testifying to the redemption of God. And doesn't Paul talk about that in Romans chapter 8. We alluded to it a little bit this morning. 
For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That's God. That the creation itself will be set free from the bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning. And if the creation has been groaning, when it's set free, what's it going to do? It's going to make a joyful noise. There's going to be a celebration even within creation. Groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we await for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. But this is what he says earlier on, for I consider that the sufferings of this world are not compared to the glory that is revealed to us, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And so, what the psalmist is talking about here in a metaphor Paul is showing is going to be true. And so, Watts, in his great carol, says, and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the world. Heaven and nature sing. Why? Because no more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make His blessings flow as far as the curse is found. In other words, the blessings of Jesus permeate the whole of creation. And what is used poetically will come to an actual physical realization. And then finally, it's consummated with the judgment of God. God, we saw this morning, brings not only redemption to His people, but justice to the world. He judges the world with equity, with justice. This was the hope of the Old Testament saint. Living in a world of injustice and violence and hatred, he looked forward to a day. How could he do that except by the power of the Spirit of God? How could he do that except under the inspiration of God? Uh, if it were me in my natural self, my heart would just be swallowed up by the evil, that the, the unconquerable evil that seemed to be flooding the world. But the psalmist seemed to be able to look beyond and say, look, there's a day coming when he comes to judge the world with justice and equity. How could you even dare to dream something like that apart from the Spirit of God? The same way the Apostle Paul could stand on Mars Hill with all the great philosophers and he said, God has appointed a day in which He will judge the world through the one whom He has appointed. And He has given proof that He's going to do this by raising Him from the dead. In other words, for Paul, the resurrection of Jesus was historical and definitive for his understanding of everything. For his understanding of God finishing what He started. Completing the work of redemption and judgment upon the world. And so that is the hope. That is the joy that we have. And it keeps us from losing our minds when things go wrong. When life doesn't go our way, we have still so many reasons 
So Moses said, the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that are revealed belong to us. The marvelous works of God to be studied, to be taken delight in by all those who study them. Let's pray.